0: Thank you very much, Mira. And it's really nice to, to be here. Um, and yes, welcome to Green Templeton thank College, but thank you for the invitation to talk to you. Um, so, this isn't going to be a class in statistics. and I think most of you will be really relieved. that, that I have been talking to Mira about whether we might put on a yes. workshop. Uh, and statistics for journalists I'd be very keen to do that at some point so so we'll continue those discussions instead what I'm going to aim to talk about today is to describe to you how statisticians put a mirror up to society and I think that's what journalists are doing too Um, So I really want to draw some of the parallels between being a journalist and being a statistician. And I hope that in an hour and a half's time, those of you who haven't thought about the issues of the parallels will see see that theme. We'll see that, that many of the issues about how we protect the integrity of statistics are similar issues as to how you protect the integrity of your journalism. Um, the other thing is that I want to give you a few flags as sort of some of the things that you might ask as journalists in order to judge the quality of the data, um, and so how do you build an understanding and trust in the data, so, so that will be another aim of, of what I talk about. Um, I tend to talk for too long, so Mira might start waving at me madly. Um, In discussion, I'm very happy to really go off the record and to talk about some of the the difficult problems that are experienced in particular countries over political manipulation of data and this whole issue of sort of misinformation. So I'm very happy to do that in discussion and I will be frank and open with you from my UN experience. Um, But I won't do that in in the talk that you're recording if that's okay okay so um so let me uh, kick off as to why we need statistics well of course i think we'd all agree that they're fundamental for evidence-based policy and for decision making right across the system um so i would argue that statistics we trust are essential for a healthy society in the same way as journalism we trust is essential for a healthy society We're helping people to make well-informed decisions by putting the best available evidence um, at the heart of policy development and implementation. And note, I say the best available evidence. It's not necessarily perfect information. And indeed, um, perfect information collected over too long a period and late is often of no use at all. Um, so, it's the best available. I just had lunch today with Muir Gray, and I used to have a slide um, quoting him where he said, He says um, it's the best available rather than the, the best information. Um, it's also important that statistics can highlight what we don't know as well as what we do. And so, as a UN statistician, one of the battles that we had to confront is if there's no data for a country, are we better to say no data and just be open about it? Or do we try and make our best estimate and impute that data based on other information we have? Um, Are we misleading by imputing or should we we, um, be honest when we don't have data? Um, should we be honest if we have concerns about the quality of that data and this might be something we come back and discuss because it's it's a very thorny issue Um, and um, it's one I confronted every single day in my job in the UN Um, because the UN is um, is an organization of the people of the world but it's managed by the governments of the world Right, And so I, would ha- I think I, as a, as a statistician in the UN, had a responsibility to the public, the citizens, in terms of being honest about the quality of information. But the difficulty was that a lot of the UN system is controlled by ambassadors and so on of the different countries, and they have concerns um, about uncomfortable data being published um, I, I use this slide quite a lot and it, I think that John Maynard Keynes actually had his tongue in his cheek when he said this I think it's he didn't mean it literally but it is interesting that um, in some situations, you can find that organisations and governments um, don't want a large amount of information, particularly if it undermines what they've decided to do anyway, what they're doing in terms of ideology. So it's not that more, more evidence is always needed. Sorry, I'm starting to croak. Um, statistics also serve to empower. So when I say they hold a mirror up to society, this is what I mean. They enable us as citizens to call our governments, our public servants, our uh, corporate organisations and so on, to account. So they're part of a a democratic system, and I'm not using democratic in a very narrow sense, I'm using it very broadly. Um, And they need to be the currency of public debate. So I'm feeding into this issue of trust. Now, how do you judge the quality of statistics? Well, this is what, if we had a day on statistics for journalists, I think I would spend my time going through as to how, how do you make these sorts of judgments. Um, just quickly, because I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this and I could spend a whole day on it. You need to understand the provenance of the source of that information really well. You need to know something about the methodology, you know, the size of the sample, whether it's representative of the population and so on. You need to know things like the participation rates, has there been high non-response? You need to know something about the expertise of the people who are collecting and analyzing these data, Um, and whether they've got particular agendas, You need to know something about the independence of the statistical system, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Need to understand whether there are incentives to report in particular ways, and I will talk about incentives a lot more in a minute. And then there are other ways that, as a statistician, I would use to judge the quality of data. Various methods of checking validity, such as triangulation, so looking at other sources and whether this is consistent with other sources, um, whether the data are plausible in particular ways, whether they hang together in a consistent way, and so on. So there's various tests that we can use for face validity, for inherent validity, for scientific validity, and so on. But the quality of statistics is not just one dimension. Quality of statistics has many, many different dimensions. Um, Right through from the efficient use of the resources, their validity and reliability, uh, their relevance to, to policy. So when I was setting up the Institute for Statistics in UNESCO, Um, I needed it to be relevant to the organisation and relevant to the questions being asked. There's no point in having a statistics unit that is collecting data that nobody's interested in. But getting that right and not being driven by particular agendas within the organisation is very hard. So relevance uh, to policy... The utility of the data is really important. And then there's many other dimensions, many of them to do with how you're using the data, whether you're using the data in a comparative fashion, um, whether you're looking at at change over time, um, uh, whether you want to be able to disaggregate the data to look at subgroups, um, how recent the data are, and so on. So many dimensions to data quality. it is not a narrow definition, and the difficulty is that data sets, data can be um, very, very strong on some of these dimensions and weak on others, and therefore, you need to know what the purpose is of the use of the data in order to judge whether the data are fit for that purpose. I can't tell you whether a data set is good, per se, till I understand the, the the purpose. So let me just give you an example to illustrate this. Um, In the United Kingdom we have two ways of measuring the unemployment rate. We have those people that are registered for unemployment benefit um, and we have those people who claim in a survey A survey carried out according to the methodology of the International Labour Organization claimed to be unemployed. Um, And there are particular definitions that are given to them there. These are two different statistics. There are people who claim to be unemployed who are not eligible for unemployment benefit in particular. When Margaret Thatcher was in power, she changed the definition of who was eligible for unemployment benefit 19 times during her period of office. 18 of those made those, the number of people eligible for unemployment benefit a reduce, because that's why she was doing it, to get more people out of the system. Um, and statistics came under great criticism at that time, that statistics were a political artifact that she was changing the definition, Um, and people were arguing that we should only use the ILO definition of of, uh, unemployment, because that wasn't subject to the same political manipulation. I argued we need both, because they're measuring two different things. I want to know what the ILO definition is, but I also want to know, as a citizen, how many people are eligible for unemployment benefit. And the fact that that's going down over time, whereas the other statistic is remaining static or even rising, that tells me more. So I'm actually using the two statistics together in different ways. So I'm just illustrating the fact that fitness for purpose is really important. So a prerequisite is that data must be trustworthy, but it's not enough that they're trustworthy. They've also got to be trusted. Um, If they're not trusted you end up having fights about the data rather than about the issues. Um, So at the moment in the UK universities we have got uh, government plans to expand the way in which we measure teaching excellence and that's going to be measures of teaching excellence by subject area. Those data are not trustworthy, they are not trusted, they are not valid in relation to what they are trying to measure and all that is happening is there is just heat round and angry conversations around the data (coughs) rather than around the issue. The issue is that we all want to improve the quality of the education that we are providing but the statistics are not helping with that discussion. Um, Anthony Seldon produced an absolutely fantastic book on the topic of trust. And um, this is my summary of a a whole book. (laughs) Um, And he talks about trust being necessary for good government, that a government which is trusted has higher levels of legitimacy and there's a greater willingness of its citizens to comply comply with its rulings. So as a statistician, I say that's really important because I know that in countries where the population does not trust the government, we have huge difficulties in collecting high quality data because people try and avoid being countered because they don't want to be known to the government. It's absolutely critical that we have a government which is trusted. But the the other side of that also is that a government who doesn't trust the public tends to hem it in with mechanisms of accountability and surveillance. And a lot of us call this the regulation society. And we're moving increasingly in some societies into a regulation framework. Last night here in the college, I think some of you were there, we had some really good talks about the, nation, about the health systems across the world. And one of the things that the NHS was described as, as being so heavily regulated that um, the staff no longer feel trusted and doctors, nurses and so on are looking to leave the NHS because they don't feel trusted in this system. I hope that that gives you a sense of the sort of data that I'm talking about that I, I, I made that video with my colleagues. Um, it's one of the last things I did before leaving UNESCO. And um, it helps me just convey to you sort of data that a statistician might be collecting globally so you note that a lot of that data is trying to add up the situation across all countries of the world so global data other of the data is about getting a sense of the particular story in a country because that adds flavor and um, adds a dimension to, to the data, brings the data alive. And this is one of the challenges for, for statisticians, is to how to get this balance right between the, the dry statistics that you collect across the system and the in-depth data that you might gather. Um, so I want to talk in a few minutes about global data because I know a few of you are interested in global stories, international stories. So how do we decide what we collect globally? Well, um, there are a number of ways. One is that governments sign up to goals and commitments at world and regional uh, summits or their parties to conventions and uh, international agreements. Um, the other way in which uh, we decide what to collect globally is that countries commit as part of aid packages and more and more the developed countries that give funding to uh, poorer countries of the world are requiring statistics to show that that money is being used effectively. There's been aid fatigue in many rich countries. They need to show that that money is being used effectively. And so um, statisticians such as myself will be asked to collect data in order to have an independent assessment as to whether or not um, commitments of various sorts, whether international commitments or part of of aid commitments are being met. Note that, in that, I don't say anything about users. Now, if I'm a national statistician, or a local statistician, I would be talking about users' needs driving statistics. I would be talking about actually understanding policy and policy needs. That doesn't feature very much when you're an international statistician. That isn't isn't one of the drivers. The drivers are much more these sort of international activities. And the goals are translated into targets, and then into batteries and batteries of indicators, which statisticians have to report on usually annually or or maybe when an aid package is being reviewed. And you'll all have heard of the Millennium Development Goals and then the Sustainable Development Goals, and they're the the most well-known examples of um, these... Uh, goals that were set internationally. Um, So let me talk about some of the problems with this. One of the fundamental ones is that the power and the resources are held by the richer countries. Um, So um, we have the problem of what I call uh, statistical colonialism. Um, We've got some shifts away from it. I mean, people are becoming more aware, there's a greater voice from the poorer countries of the world arguing against this, but there is still a resource issue. So as an international statistician, I have to collect some new data, I need to get agreement across countries as to how I'm going to define, how do I define out of school children, might come back to you as a test later as to how you define out of school children in a way that is gives you comparable data in different countries Um, so I said 58 million children are out of school what do I mean by that so you need comparability of definitions and so on and you need to bring people from different circumstances together in order to discuss that comparability resource issues always remain critical in that so The classic example I give you is I was working in Lesotho, and Lesotho had decided to take an instrument, um, first um, uh, produced by the OECD and then adapted by another UN agency, fortunately not UNESCO. uh, It could have been UNESCO. Um, And it was a a test that children had to take. And it was a maths test. And one of the questions was, your father brings home a pizza for tea. Um, There are uh, five of you in the family. What percentage of the pizza do you get? (coughs) These were children in rural Lesotho. Um, I mean, none of that question made any sense to them whatsoever, yeah. none of that question. Um, I could go into every element, element of it being wrong. It's just an extreme example to show you that you've got to have understanding in order to, to produce data that is comparable across different, different environments. Um, a friend of mine always says that, that um, comparability is always skin deep that it's really very thin. Um, So there are resource issues. There's always a tension between what's globally determined and what's locally decided. Um, You want data to be locally relevant, but the difficulty is that resources are going into these global data collections. Um, The challenges about how we meet the needs of the cutting edge and the trailing countries and the tools being owned by the richer countries. So if you asked me, are global data fit for purpose? I'm afraid I would have to say it depends because it depends upon your own purposes and the multiple purposes for any one data set. So if you're wanting to get a point in time estimate, the best estimate today, you need a different data set from if you're interested in change over time for example Um, but the thing that you really have to be aware of is that statistical capacity and resources are very unevenly spread across the world and why would we expect a country in dire poverty undergoing maybe major um, wars major traumas to be able to prioritize and collect high quality data it's not feasible They don't have the resources, they're not able to do it. So unfortunately, we have the situation where often the data are weakest for the very areas that we're most interested in. It happens in all our societies. Here in the UK, one of the things that we're really interested in is people who are marginalised within society. By definition, they're the ones that it's hardest to collect information from. The first statistical exercise I did when I joined the government way back in my early 20s was I was seconded to a Royal Commission on the Homeless to try to estimate the number of homeless people in the United Kingdom and their circumstances. Extraordinarily difficult task. So we always have difficulty in that where circumstances are tough, People are marginalised, that's where we have the weakest data. (coughs) But comparable data are essential if we want to aggregate across boundaries or we want to aggregate, we want to look at change over time. Um, So one of the difficulties is that the data often aren't owned locally. We always have this balance about do we rely on the local data even if it's got deficiencies or do we go in with greater statistical expertise and try and collect the data ourselves? The UN in general relies on local data. The World Bank and the IMF are much more likely to send staff in to collect data themselves. Neither's perfect, both have problems. My philosophy is always about trying to build capacity within the countries to enable them to collect and use data. So here I say about comparability being only skin deep. deep. There are many, many ways in which data comparability raises problems. And I've just put some of them there, language and culture, ideology and politics, economics, resources, history, context. Different methodologies being used and so on. So, should we trust global data? Well, there was a very important book that's caused huge offence in many African countries, uh, written by uh, a Swedish um, development economist, Morton Jensen. Uh, it's called Poor Data. And he spends the book really rubbish and criticizing um, African data. Um, I think uh, it's a very biased book and, and very unfair um, to countries who are trying their best to collect data. But it does make you stop and think about the difficulties of, of collecting high quality data in such circumstances. So, there are lots of reasons not to trust data. Um, and I said earlier that one of the things that you should examine is what's the independence of the statistical system Um, asking questions about whether there's good statistical practice in the country is important so does is there autonomy of the statistics office is the appointment of the head of the office divorced from the political process Um, we have a situation here in europe at the moment where the former head of statistics for greece is being prosecuted um, uh, I can talk some more about that off the record if you want. But it's really, um, it's really interesting how even within uh, a richer developed country, we have these problems. I've worked a lot in Argentina. The, um, the former director uh, general of statistics in Argentina is banished from the country, no longer able to live in, in Argentina, lives in Uruguay. Um, I've visited her in Uruguay, I don't think she's ever going to be able to go home. Um, And that's because she produced data that the government didn't like, right? It was uncomfortable for the government of the day. Um, What are the auditing processes? What are the codes of conduct? is their compliance with the various things like the UN principle of official statistics. So there's a number of ways in which I would check out, if I was looking at data from a particular agency, check out the the quality of that agency. So the crunch points are, and I think these are crunch points for journalists too, are statisticians shielded from undue political pressure? What happens when they produce uncomfortable truths? Um, do the politicians seek to distort the results or do they produce alternative facts what's the relationship of the statisticians to the media do they have direct access to the media Um, do they have to go through some process and get agreement before they can speak to the media Um, so I think there are many other questions you can ask but I think all of these are really important ones Um, if uh, maybe when we finish I'll tell you a little tale about uh, a discussion between a Canadian statistician and a Russian statistician (laughs) on this topic (laughs) I don't know if you can read this at a distance but it's to the White House press corps keep up the good fight for truth, justice, and the American way, especially for the truth part. And it's from Tom Hanks. So I would hope he would say that to statisticians too. Um, some of you may be familiar with Goodhart's law. When a measure becomes a target, it ceases to become a good measure. So I mentioned earlier that a lot of us are living in societies that are increasingly Regulated, increasing number of metrics produced, and you, the journalists, are getting, receiving material on a regular basis about, you know, how the the health service in your country is performing, how the education service is performing, and so on. Um, This is part of understanding incentives, that governments are both monitoring the, the services and being monitored by them. And more and more data are expressed as targets. Um, the Royal Statistical Society produced a really great report about this a few years ago on performance monitoring um, called The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, speaking about the advantages of having good monitoring systems but the problems of doing so. Um, this is a, um, rather specific to this country but... Uh, You may recognise it for other countries too, the Chief Executive's NHS target game, so the whole issue of of gaming. And because it's hard to measure what's really important, we often measure something else. And then we devote our resources to achieving the wrong target, or we have uh, unintended consequences. And again, in discussion, I can give you lots of examples of this, from uh, internationally and, and nationally. It's a great book been produced just recently on the tyranny of metrics, the obsession with quantifying. Um, Organisations ruled by the belief that the path to success is by quantifying performance and publicising the results. And in this book, uh, Jerry Muller talks about, in our zeal to instill the evaluation process with scientific rigour, we've gone from measuring performance to fixating on measuring itself. So we get the problem of of hitting the target but missing the point completely. Um, The danger with a measurement culture is that you give excessive attention to what you can measure um, at the expense of what's difficult or impossible to measure, even though that may be fundamental. So just as a quick aside, I know Mira's worried about the time, but just as a quick aside, Um, I had responsibility at UNESCO for reporting annually on how many people across the world are illiterate. Um, Just think for a minute about how you do that. Um, I don't know how I report annually in the UK on how many people are illiterate. It's not data that is collected through any administrative process. Um, on a regular basis. It's really expensive to collect it through surveys. It's very difficult to collect it through surveys because you can't for one minute, you can't can't do (laughs) surveys in many methodologies. You've got to actually go and do face-to-face interviews with people. You can't do it any other way and you have the problem that again people are marginalised are less likely to participate I worked in Papua New Guinea, and Papua New Guinea has 400 and something different languages. What does literacy mean in Papua New Guinea? Literacy in which language? Um, And if we say it's literacy in any of the languages that are written, is that comparable data then with a country that is only measuring literacy in relation to one language? Um, So, all sorts of difficulties as to how you collect this information and how it's comparable. But yet, agreement was reached at the Millennium Summit that this was important. I think we'd all agree it was important. None of us would argue that literacy levels aren't important. But agreement having been reached, then the statisticians were told that they had to measure the number of illiterates annually. all countries of the world right so what happened was we got proxies for it so instead of measuring literacy we measured what proportion of the population had five years of primary education and if you look at the human development report the human development index that is the proxy for literacy it is not measuring literacy at all And somewhere you will find in the footnotes that it tells you that that is the proxy for literacy. But does anybody ever read footnotes? No. So the fact that this is named literacy, it takes a life of its own. So I was sent a paper for review from some economists in the World Bank who'd written this paper saying primary education can't be as bad as we thought it was. Because look, there's an almost off- perfect correlation between the number of children who've been in five years primary education and literacy levels for the country. <laughs> all they were doing was circular. All they were doing was finding what we'd used as the proxy. So they were very upset when I wrote back and said, no, <laughs> this, doesn't, this isn't what it's measuring at all. I don't know if you know that quote, but I think it's a lovely quote. I, I always argue that all statisticians should have this quote on their, their walls. I won't read it all out to you, but it's really, it's a quote from Robert Kennedy, and it's really about the fact that, that uh, GNP, or GDP, you could say, um, doesn't measure, doesn't measure what most of us feel are important, is important in our societies. Um, I'll leave these slides with you, so you're welcome to it afterwards. There's been a lot of discussion about this over the last 10, 15 years. The fact that the economic measures evaluated narrowly are not measuring the quality of our lives. So in France, Sarkozy set up the Commission on the Measurement of Economic Performance and Social Progress under Stiglitz, Sen, Sen, and Fittuzzi, who was Director General of Statistics in France at that time. The reason why Sarkozy set this up was because Germany outperforms France in economic statistics all the time. And Sarkozy wanted to make the point that the quality of life in France was greater than the quality of life in Germany. <laughs> that the red wine was better, etc. And so he set up a commission on, on this topic and, and really told the commission that what he wanted them to find was <laughs> that the quality of life in France was better than in Germany. In fact, the commission did a very interesting report that wasn't quite along those lines, but it, it's a good discussion of the adequacy of measures of economic performance, particularly this obsession that we have with growth growth, 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 growth. Um, economic growth. Economic growth is important but it also has some downsides. Often it's at the expense of the poor, often it's at the expense of the environment, often it's actually not a good reflection of the, the quality of uh, the environment, the life uh, of a country. Um, so it's a really it's a it's a very good report and even though it's a few years old now I still recommend it it was was really this sort of movement that led for the move from Millennium Development Goals to sustainable development goals because there was concern that the Millennium Development Goals were really about an unrelenting pursuit of growth at the expense of the environment that they didn't measure inequalities within countries That they were only national data so I used to joke in UNESCO that the way in which we would get more countries to achieve the Millennium Development Goals was to put all our resources into Vanuatu and small tiny tiny countries and none of our resources into Brazil because Brazil was has huge huge inequalities and was going to really struggle to meet the the goals whereas if you put resources into a small country, you could achieve it. And this obsession with the nation being the unit of analysis is a problem. Um, Also, recognition that that we need to give visibility to the disenfranchised in our societies. And also, this challenge about how do we get it right? Do we concentrate on a small number of indicators, or should we be all-embracing? Um, the Millennium Development Goals was maybe too small a set. The Sustainable Development Goals, in my view, are too large a set, and some of them are really, really difficult to measure. So if you want an exercise, go and look at the Sustainable Development Goals, pretend you're a statistician, and think about how you would measure them. So this whole issue of sort of the, uh, the tyranny of numbers, that that if we don't count something it gets ignored and if we do count it 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 risks getting perverted um, and that when you uh, this philosophy of figures having a spurious credibility um, that when you measure what you're speaking of and you express it in terms of numbers you know something about it um, uh, it's very interesting because again I think it speaks to you as journalists because I know journalists who feel that they, they have to pepper their articles with numbers because otherwise they won't have any credibility. Um, so it, it, it's a problem that you confront. This is my last slide and this is my last slide because in the same way as I want Robert Kennedy's Um, quote up on the wall of every statistician. I also want every statistician or everybody who gets obsessed with numbers to realise that there are much more powerful ways of communicating. Statistics is one way of communicating but pictures are a really powerful way of communicating. Um, Words are a really powerful way of communicating. So my dream for the future is greater integration of the statistics profession into the journalist profession, into the photojournalist profession and so on, for us to actually work together, to be building our skills together um, and uh, not to be in confrontation as has sometimes happened. Thank you.